0: Four months ago, I stood in this pulpit and asked, can you feel the wheel of the year turning? At that time in early December, I was inviting us to pause and notice the inexorable pull toward winter solstice as the days grew incrementally shorter, culminating in that darkest day of the year with the least hours of sunlight. This past week, however, there's been less of a slow turning of what pagans call the wheel of the year and more of a sudden jolt. This past Wednesday, the headline of the Frederick News Post read, From Sledding to Sunbathing. Winter cold and winds were hanging on longer than expected and suddenly we've skipped spring and catapulted into summer. At the same time, there's been a resplendent array of flowers blooming. Back in December, that sermon was titled "The Spirituality of Winter," and I proposed that those among us who are drawn to the cold, dark days of winter—who—who who among us are drawn to the cold, dark—I don't understand you. You can, you need to, you need to share with me later. I'm trying. I'm learning to love the winter, uh, but. Uh, But if you are drawn to those dark, cold days, you may find spiritual practices of darkness, of silence, of letting go and saying no to be particularly fruitful for you. Or if you're in a winter season of your life, this is both metaphorical and literal. But in contrast to the cold, long nights of winter, which make me want to curl up next to a fire and eat dense, rich, fattening foods... (laughs) The warming and lengthening days of spring made me want to get outside and exercise and do all these things at the same time that that Laura talked about, and savor the beauty of nature blossoming. And in due time, I'll likely preach a sermon on the spirituality of summer and the spirituality of fall, but for now, I invite us to focus on the changes that are happening within you as the world around us shifts from winter to spring. Spring is a time of dawning light, new life, new birth, new hope, a time of warmth, exuberance, dancing, and blossoming. And if spring is your favorite season, the most natural corresponding spiritual practices might be artistic, creative endeavors, or if it's a springtime season, metaphorically, of your life. Accordingly, I've subtitled this morning's sermon, creativity as a spiritual practice. And I'd like us to explore the spiritual practice of creativity in two ways. The first more abstract and esoteric, and the second more concrete and down-to-earth. So the first one sounds a little too theoretical. Hang with me. So to set the context for the first of the two approaches, I'd like to briefly remind you about a sermon about about a month ago titled, why is there something rather than nothing? I know, especially if you're new here, I'm referencing two different sermons, but you know, there really is a project. I'm going somewhere. These sermons aren't just uh, haphazard. We really are. Uh, they're connected. There's a, maybe not a master plan yet, but there's, uh, we are going somewhere. And in that sermon on why is there something instead of nothing, I quoted some fairly startling statistics from the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson about the strong argument that can be made that the universe does not have any particular purpose. Or at least if there is a purpose in our 13.7 billion year old universe with more than 400 billion galaxies, not solar systems, galaxies, then the purpose did not reach its peak with the evolution of the species Homo sapiens sapiens here on the far-flung planet Earth. There may, however, be an easier case to be made for tracing the trajectory of increasing complexity in our 13.7 billion-year-old universe story. In a bare-bones account, you can trace increasing levels of complexity from the pre-atomic to the atomic, to the molecular, to the unicellular, to the multicellular, to the vertebrate, to the primate, to the human, and maybe to emergent levels of complexity that we are only beginning or have not yet perceived. And whether or not you believe that the universe has a purpose, it's striking to me that we humans exist, that we're here and that it's spring. Over the course of billions of years, it's breathtaking to consider the emerging stages of complexity of preatomic particles combining into atoms and then molecules to prokaryotic cells, to eukaryotic cells. How many of you haven't thought about prokaryotic and eukaryotic cells since um, biology class a long time ago? To vertebrates and primates and then again into we modern humans. There's not just nothing, and not even just something, but the outstandingly amazing something of ourselves, of our society, and of the world around us. As E.E. Cummings wrote, we're surrounded in the spring by the leaping, greenly spirits of trees, and by the blue, true dream of sky, and by everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. Now there is also brokenness And tragedy aplenty but that brokenness and tragedy is interlaced with beauty and inspiration and looking at the full sweep of the 13.7 billion year old universe story one theologian describes humans and how we got here this way we are stardust we humans are stardust evolved to the place that that stardust can think about itself We are the universe conscious of itself. We are stardust that can contemplate the stars. We have arisen out of the dynamics of the earth. Four billion years ago, our planet was molten rock. Now, our planet sings opera. And let me tell you, this is good news. As a way of experimenting with the implications of this idea, the spiritual teacher Andrew Cohen has been leading what he calls being and becoming retreats. Now I haven't been to this. He's been leading them in Tuscany, Italy, which would be a bonus of going, I think, but I uh, have not yet made it over to Italy. Uh, but, well, I've been there, but not for, not on his terms. The first half of the retreat focuses on cultivating what many of us have come to expect um, from mindfulness retreats, a greater awakening to the fullness of being present uh, in the sense of be here now. But the second half of Cohen's being and becoming retreats are more unusual. He's experimenting with inviting practitioners to open themselves to what he's um, tentatively calling the evolutionary impulse, One is invited to move your focus from being to becoming with contemplating, is there something that you can sense about this increasing emergent complexity, about this propulsive force of evolution that's come to fruition over almost 14 billion years, to what's arising and emerging on the horizon of each moment and how perhaps we can co-create a future intentionally along with this as stardust that has become aware of itself as stardust that has learned to contemplate the stars. So is the spirituality of spring perhaps something like that? Have you ever not been surprised by spring? At least for me, spring is always more miraculous and astounding than I remember in the, in the details and the abundance of it. Maybe it's because I'm so grateful for the end of winter, <laughs> but... I think it's more than that. Uh, Thinking back on just this past week, I was freshly stopped in my tracks by the brilliant, blazing yellow of forsythia bushes. I mean, they're just, it's just so incredible to me. I feel drawn to them like a beacon. And the startling glory of weeping cherry trees. And there's so many more examples, but such beauty that we don't control and didn't invent, but are simply invited to behold and to receive in gratitude. And at its best, I think that that's what those becoming retreats are about. Inviting ourselves not only to be present to every moment, but also to increase our awareness of the wonder of the workings of evolution that turns pre-atomic particles over billions of years into humans and more. That results in stardust becoming aware of itself and results in the flowering each year. Of spring. So, what I'm doing is certainly not making an argument for intelligent design, but I am marshalling an argument for wonder, for amazement, for awe, for gratitude as integral to a spirituality of spring. The theologian Matthew Fox says it this way, We now have an inkling of the unbelievable fertility of the universe of the constant birthings of atoms and molecules, eggs and spermatozoa, of cells and living organisms in water and on land. And scientists are discovering an increasing number of Earth-like planets out there. As you've heard me say before, my favorite line from the film Contact is that I'll tell you one thing about the universe. The universe is a pretty big place. It's bigger than anything anyone ever dreamed of before. So if it's just us, it seems like an awful big waste of space. So what I've been building to is the invitation for you to consider if perhaps our creativity as humans, our creative impulse, is that related to the evolutionary impulse of the universe? The groundbreaking American modern dancer and choreographer Martha Graham said it this way, there is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you, through each one of you into action. And because there is only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. If you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and it will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable it is, nor how it compares to other expressions. It's your business to keep it yours, clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. And if there is a relationship between our individual creativity and the universe's creative beauty, consider this statistic. Studies show that 80% of six-year-olds, all these children that were gathered up here earlier, that 80% of six-year-olds, but only 10% of 40-year-olds, report being creative. 80% to 10%. So our creativity just fled the room. We, we sung them away. I remember a college trombone teacher telling me a few years ago that when he taught general music classes to young children at the university, almost 100% of them could easily and naturally swing and dance to the beat of any song that he played, just randomly picked from any genre. But shockingly high number of students in his undergraduate general education course were stiff and seemingly unable to move their bodies to the beat of the music, even for a grade. This is a tragic example of atrophied creativity. Anytime you hear a call to cut funding for arts education in our public schools, remember that our inherent creativity, that link to the creative impulse of the universe, that's what's being debated. And when I say art, I mean art in the broadest possible sense. Painting, pottery, sculpture, design, crafts, weaving, photography, video, filmmaking, architecture, music, theater, dance, and so many others. We need more of all of these aspects in all parts of our society from the public square to the sanctuary. And from a related, related angle, one theologian, Thomas Berry, has said that gardening is an active participation in the deepest mysteries of the universe. Gardening is an active participation in the deepest mysteries of the universe. Gardening connects you to the passing of time, the seasons, and to the source of your food. This impulse is what led Gandhi to champion the do-it-yourself movement, the method of using a spinning wheel to make your own clothes in an age in which many of us are deeply disconnected from the sweatshops where so much of what we wear is made as one um, singer-songwriter has said, Brett Denon, there is slavery stitched into the fabric of our clothes, in many cases. Growing our own food, cooking our own meals, sewing our own clothes. Now, that's starting to sound exhausting to me, but that's uh, for a larger discussion. Uh, creating art, however you do it, uh, is, these are all part of the life-giving practices that we can learn if we would learn to lean in to embracing the springtime seasons of our lives. Now, if there are more time, there's a lot more I'd like to say, in particular, about the burst of creativity that we witnessed this past century in the abstract expressionist movement of modern art. But I realized as I was writing this, this sermon that that really needed to be another sermon in and of itself. So that that's coming. Instead, I'll move to my second overall theme, which is a more concrete way of embodying creativity as a spiritual practice. It's a way, if you feel like you're one of those 80% that's lost touch with your creativity, it's a way to reconnect with it and re-harness that easiness of creativity that came and comes in childhood until it's taught out of us. How many of you have read Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way? All right, so a decent number of you. Now, how many of you have completed the full twelve-week course that the book leads you through? All right, a few, a few less. All right. Uh, so I ask that follow-up question because the Artist's Way is one of those books for which reading through is not enough; it's insufficient. The transformation comes not through reading, not through getting it or thinking you get it cognitively, but through rediscovering your inner creativity through doing all the activities. That's where the unlocking of creativity happens. I led a study of the artist's way a few years ago in the congregation I was a part of at the time, and two activities in particular still stand out to me, morning pages and artist dates. Cameron described, I know, right, get a witness, all right. Cameron describes the practice this way. Three pages of long-hand writing. When's the last time you wrote something longhand, hand Especially three pages, single-spaced. Uh, I used to do it on legal pads. Strictly stream of consciousness. It's not meant to be art or even writing. She actually recommends that you never read them. I used to just I'd do the three pages and then put them in the recycling bin. Nothing too petty, nothing's too petty, too silly, too stupid, too weird to be included. Three pages, single-spaced, longhand, stream of consciousness. You know, I don't know why I'm doing this. This is kind of stupid. I'm not sure how am I going to get to the end of three pages. I need to get groceries later. I mean, whatever. You know... <laughs> Although occasionally colorful, Cameron writes, the morning pages are often negative, frequently fragments, often self-pitying, repetitive, stilted, babyish, angry, or bland. She writes, good. This stuff eddies through our subconscious and muddies our days. So she says, get it on the page. She calls it a brain drain. Just get all that stuff out there and on the page and, and move on with your life. Morning pages, along with meditation and a discernment practice called the Awareness examine, which focuses on consolations and desolations in your life, those are some of the spiritual practices that I've done most frequently and for the longest period of time, I and mean, for many years in my life, because they, at least for me, have been the most fruitful for me. And I can't recommend morning pages to you highly enough as a way of clearing your head and setting the stage for re-engaging your creative self. And I think part of it is just, it can be so intimidating if you're cr- trying to re-embrace your creativity to face that blank page. And so morning pages, I think another sort of subconscious trick it does is you've produced three pages, it may be junk, but you've, you've created three pages that didn't exist before. So it gets you used to producing Um, And a spiritual practice that I need to start doing again more regularly is that second one, which is a weekly artist date. The idea is to spend even just an hour, or more each week if you can, immersing yourself in a creative environment that will help inspire your own creativity. I'll list a few examples of suggested artist dates that I collected back when I led that Artist Way creativity group. And as I list these suggested artist date activities, I really want you to pay attention inside yourself um, to how it feels to imagine giving yourself permission to spend even an hour um, this next week or once a week doing, indulging in one of these activities. Especially if one or more of these activities resonates with you deeply, I encourage you to try to find some time soon, this spring or even this next week, to experiment with one of these artist dates as a way of celebrating and re-embracing the creativity at the heart of a springtime spirituality, at the heart, perhaps, of the universe story. Take a long, leisurely walk in the woods, or even just around your neighborhood or even just around your block, if that's all you can manage at first. Take a slow walk during your lunch break and really notice everything around you. Springtime's a perfect time for this. Wake up early to watch the sunrise or find a comfortable place to sit outside and savor the sunset. Visit an ethnic neighborhood and savor the different tastes and sights and sounds and smells. Go to a local museum or attraction or to a plant nursery. Spend a complete morning or evening in a bookstore. Use it as your own personal book museum. Pull out your old school annuals. Remember what you and your friends were like. Remember things that pleased you as a child or teenager and pick one to do again. Play with Play-Doh or get some chalk and draw all over the sidewalk. Don't let your kids join you. (laughs) Just for you. You can do it later with them. Go to a local batting cage and get in some batting practice. Go to the playground and swing, slide, or climb the jungle gym all the way to the top. Sit way up on top of the jungle gym and sing. Get a blanket and lay down outside and count the stars or try to spot constellations or cloud watch. Take a leisurely bike ride, not for exercise, just to notice the world. Hang out for a few hours in the downtown of a neighboring town. Visit a flea market, a thrift store, a craft fair, a garage sale. Maybe find a frame. Paint something and frame it and hang it on your wall. Fly a kite, color in a coloring book, play with a helium balloon, and then watch it float up into the air until you can't see it anymore. May these ideas percolate within you during the blossoming of this springtime and give you permission to more robustly engage your inherent creativity. Spring is a time of dawning light, of new life, new birth, and new hope, a time of warmth, exuberance, dancing, and blossoming. And if spring is your favorite season, the most natural corresponding spiritual practices might be artistic, creative endeavors. Or perhaps you've found yourself or are about to find yourself in a springtime of your life, irrespective of the season. As this sermon draws to a close, I want to leave you with one further thought about the transformative potential of embracing creativity as a spiritual practice. When I first saw the Broadway musical Rent, one of the lyrics that stood out to me most was this, the opposite of war isn't peace. The opposite of war isn't peace. It's creation. The claim being made is that what our souls deeply long for as an alternative to the destructiveness of violence is not peaceful passivity. It's the time and space to create, to create in partnership with the creative impulse at the heart of our 13.7 billion-year-old evolutionary process. The opposite of war isn't peace, it's creation. In that spirit, I invite you to be attentive to any creative longings that you've felt stirring within you this morning, luring and prompting and encouraging you to explore creativity as a spiritual practice, creativity as a religious experience. In the words of the poet, Now the ears of my ears awake, and the eyes of my eyes are opened. Through the spirituality of spring, may we join together to create a more hopeful, imaginative, and beautiful world.